Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Let's talk to Pierre Polyev, the front-runner in the Conservative Party of Canada leadership race. Mr. Polyev, how are you? I'm great. Good to be with you. Good to have you with us. What do you think of what the... Uh, federal government, Mr. Trudeau's government, has uh, done as far as supporting the people of Ukraine is concerned. Are you satisfied? Well, I think it's been too little too late. Um, we are we should have joined with our allies earlier to hit Russia with devastating sanctions uh, and disconnected their, or isolated Russia from the swift financial system uh, before the invasion even occurred, that would have prevented him from financing his invasion. Uh, I also think that we need to provide more lethal weapons to the Ukrainian people to carry out their defense. And finally, uh, we need to unleash the production of Canadian energy so that we can help Europe break its dependency on Putin for oil and gas, dependency that has helped finance his military aggression. So let's talk a bit about uh, Canadian energy. A few years ago, this country was poised to be an energy exporter that the world was going to count on. The world clearly needs energy. It needs natural gas. It needs oil. We see it in Europe. We've talked to the people in Europe about that reality. Yet Mr. Trudeau's focus is electric vehicles and climate. What would you do differently, given the world's situation today? What could Trudeau do that he isn't doing that Pierre Polyev as prime minister would do? Well, it's more what I would undo. He brought in anti-energy policies that have inhibited our construction of pipelines and our resource projects. Bill C-69, for example, makes it next to impossible for any pipeline to ever get approved again in Canada. Uh, He's also vetoed major resource development projects. I would repeal that law and replace it with a system that approves projects quickly after consultation with First Nations and while protecting the environment. Um, That way we could build Canadian pipelines with Canadian steel to get Canadian energy to Canadian consumers. Uh, We're actually importing 130,000 barrels of overseas oil every single day in Canada. Uh, We could replace all of it by allowing Newfoundland to increase its production of oil by the proposed 400,000 barrels a day. I would approve that increase allow Newfoundland to displace all of our overseas oil imports and ban foreign dictator oil from Canada altogether within five years. Uh, I would also unleash the production of our 1,300 trillion cubic feet of natural gas, uh, which we can ship to Asia from BC and to Europe from Newfoundland. We have the shortest shipping distances to both of those continents of any location in North America. And because of our cold weather, Uh, It's actually cheaper, much cheaper, to liquefy natural gas here in Canada than it is in the U.S. So uh, we need to unleash production of Canadian-made resources. And you mentioned electric cars. Well, the problem with electric cars right now is that uh, most of the lithium that goes into the batteries is mined and refined burning coal in China. And what good is that for the environment? We could produce that lithium right here in Canada if we could speed up the approval of mines and reduce the taxes that our energy se- our, our mining sectors pay uh, so that it is profitable not only to, to, uh, to fabricate uh, cars here, but to make the raw materials that go into them. 
Are you confident that you would be able to do this, knowing fully well that you would run into opposition from a number of premiers, including the Premier of British Columbia and the Premier of Quebec, and there is legislation in place that would be in your way. So are you confident that as Prime Minister with a majority government, you would be able to do everything that you said just now that you want to do and do it fairly quickly? I'm confident that it can be done. And I would make I would go around the provincial politicians right to the people. Polling shows that Canadians prefer Canadian energy to foreign energy. And that really is the debate. Justin Trudeau and the NDP support oil. They just want it to be foreign oil. Nothing Trudeau has done has reduced global oil consumption. In fact, we're still projected as a world to consume 60 to 100 million barrels a day for the next several decades. The question is, whose oil? Does it come from dirty dictatorships with poor environmental standards, or does it come from the low-carbon emitting, environmentally responsible, and human rights-respecting industries in Canada? I I prefer the latter. That's why, as I said, I will ban foreign or overseas oil from Canada altogether within five years, and I will replace it with Canadian energy so that we can take dollars from dictators and turn it into paychecks for our people. All right. So let me ask you about two issues that are making headlines right now. Uh, Your view of Mr. Trudeau's government's refusing to reveal why they invoked the Emergencies Act in order to end the truckers' protest in Ottawa and elsewhere. He says it's confidential cabinet business. What do you say to that? Well, that's nonsense. Um, he, uh, he, He can't justify what he did, and that's why he's covering up the facts. Look, the Emergencies Act had never before been used. We didn't, Gretchen didn't use it even when the 9-11 attacks occurred in New York, killing 24 Canadians and 3,000 Americans. And, uh, we thought at the time there might be a terrorist attack uh, coming to Canada. And even then, Gretchen managed to respond without the Emergencies Act. Even when a, a terrorist attacked and killed a soldier at the War Monument and stormed the House of Commons in 2014, Prime Minister Harper refused to use the Emergencies Act. Yet, when um, several hundred truckers just happened to be parked uh, on seven or eight roads in downtown Ottawa, Trudeau argued that their honking of horns and their bouncy castles was a national emergency requiring him to have the power to look into people's personal bank accounts and to uh, uh, bring in police state-like powers. Of course, that was completely unjustified, and he now is trying to cover up that fact by keeping the fact, uh, keeping all of the information secret. Um, we need a prime minister who will respect our freedom, including the right to peaceful protest, and that's what I will do. The other story that's making headlines, Mr. Poliev, as you know, is the prime minister's online hate legislation. I uh, am going to be speaking with the University of Ottawa law professor, Michael Geist about this in the next hour. And the fact that uh, Heritage Minister Pablo Rodriguez kept submissions to the government about the legislation from Canadians. So Twitter likens the approach of the government to this, the online hate uh, policy they're planning, to uh, policies in China, North Korea, and Iran. And minority organizations like the National Council of Canadian Muslims have expressed concern about the issue. So this is a very important aspect of governance. It cuts to the core of freedom of expression. What's your view of the online hate legislation 
or the uh, yeah the uh, legislation direction Mr. Trudeau and his government have chosen. What do you say to that? Well, it's pure censorship. He it has nothing to do with stopping hate uh, and everything to do with giving the government the control of what you see and say online. Uh, that is what uh, the submissions from the Twitter uh, corporation uh, indicate. They say they have, there's nowhere else in the democratic world where these rules exist, uh, in that these rules look more like something you would expect to see in North Korea, in Iran, or other foreign dictatorships. Um, furthermore, uh, Trudeau's plans uh, uh, Bill C-11, which would give the CRTC the power to regulate Canadian content on the Internet, and force feed what it considers to be Canadian content, though it can't tell us what Canadian content is. Uh, What we're, of course, heading towards here is a policy whereby government bureaucrats and politicians get to censor people with whom they disagree, uh, all under the guise of stopping uh, what they call hatred uh, or what they consider to be unacceptable views. Um, Canadians should have the freedom to express themselves in the open and public square. If someone says something wrong, then someone else has the freedom to correct them and win the argument against them. That's how freedom works. It's often messy, but it is the best system there is. And uh, I would uh, repeal Trudeau's censorship laws, fire the proposed digital safety commissioner, and allow uh, Canadians to have a free and open Internet. Mr. Poliev, I I spoke with uh, Jean Charest yesterday, and we know there's tension between your campaigns, which raises for some in Canada the specter of a divided Conservative Party, which we've seen before and which has not served the party well in two successive recent elections. Are their divides sufficiently deep to crater any attempt at a real Conservative Party unity? No, uh, there is no threat to Conservative Party unity. The reality is Jean Charest is a liberal. He's not a conservative. Uh, Not only did he call himself a liberal when he was premier of Quebec, he governed like a liberal. He raised the sales tax. He brought in a carbon tax. He even brought in a long gun registry to target lawful hunters and farmers rather than going after the real gun criminals who threaten our streets. Uh, So the reality is that I am a conservative. I take the opposite approach. I cut the GST along with Stephen Harper. I oppose a carbon tax and I opposed a long gun registry and favored instead tougher laws to punish violent gun criminals. So those are just honest disagreements. One of us is a conservative, me, one is a liberal, uh, and I will win this leadership race against this liberal. And then I will win against another similar liberal, Justin Trudeau, after that. All right. Let me raise the issue of housing in this country. Nothing, I think, hits closer to the quick for Canadians. You're outspoken about that. And much is being said and written about members of Parliament who own or part-own rental property. Your name has been raised as one of those MPs. But if I understand correctly, and correct me if I'm wrong, you've been open about this and disclosed in Parliament while you were challenging the former Minister of Finance, Bill Morneau, to reveal his property holdings, and we can leave out the one in France for a moment. Have you been just straightforward with Parliament, with the people of Canada, about your engagement with rental property? Well, yes, that's the only reason people know about it. I I co-own a small townhouse in Calgary, and my wife uh, very intelligently bought herself a small townhouse when she was uh, 22 or 23 years old. Um, She did it with her own money. She comes from a very modest uh, immigrant uh, family, and she did that to have a little bit of independence 
uh, she met me, so she never ended up moving into that place, but she rents it out. Uh, and uh, all of that is disclosed in our ethics filings, so that's why the public knows about it. Now, CTV, um, Liberal Network, seems to suggest that there's something wrong with owning a small rental property, as though it would be more affordable for people to rent if there were no rental properties to rent. I think that is utterly ridiculous. So the problem is not that uh, Ma and Pa investors have a, a, a townhouse they rent out. The problem is that the federal government has printed $400 billion of new cash, which has boosted demand uh, and given rich investors the cash with which to buy up and bid up houses, while local government gatekeepers at a municipal level prevent construction, restricting supply. So what's the solution? Stop printing money, start building houses. And uh, that's why I've announced my plan is to require big cities of over 500,000 people with overpriced real estate, uh, increase real estate housing construction by 15% a year, or they will lose some of the federal infrastructure money they receive okay. uh, right now. These, uh, so, yeah, if you want to get into the specifics, I'm happy to answer any questions. Well, I hope to have you back on the program. I always have more questions than we have time. So let me get at right. this. We talked about this yesterday. Interest rates and inflation plus increased cost of living. Problem. 57% of Canadians are worried they won't be able to pay their monthly bills, according to polling by MNP Canada. And I spoke with the company's senior vice president yesterday. Inflation at a 30-year high. Interest rates will climb. And 40% of Canadians told MNP they're worried about interest rates perhaps leading toward bankruptcy. Meanwhile, Professor Sylvain Charlebois, the agri-food specialist from Dalhousie, University told us yesterday the average Canadian family should expect their food bill to increase by $1,000 over the next 12 months. After I speak with you, Dan McTagg of Canadians for Affordable Energy will share with us what we must expect as far as increases in the price of gasoline and diesel will be over the next year. It's going to affect each and every one of us, even if we don't drive because of fuel surcharges. So how does Pierre Polyev, as CPC official opposition leader first, challenge these realities and what would you do to counter them if you were elected prime minister what could you do well let's first address the cause the cost of government is driving up the cost of living inflationary deficits send more dollars chasing fewer goods bidding up their prices inflationary taxes increase the cost of producing those very same goods the more governments spend the more the people pay and that's why House prices have doubled under Justin Trudeau, and inflation is at a 30-year high. Justin, inflation. So how do we reverse it? One, we have to phase out the inflationary deficits by getting government spending under control, canceling Trudeau's $100 billion slush fund, getting rid of wasteful corporate welfare that helps only the rich, uh, canceling, uh, defunding the CBC to save a billion dollars. Uh, secondly, uh, we have to get rid of the, the inflationary taxes. I will axe the carbon tax to moderate the cost of food, uh, gas, and groceries. Uh, and finally, we need to get the Bank of Canada back to its core mandate of low inflation and protecting our, our dollars rather than printing money to pay for political overspending. So in other words, stop printing cash, start making more of what cash buys. That is to say, grow more food, build more houses, produce more clean Canadian energy. That's the Polyev common sense plan. I have 30 seconds left. You have a message for federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh on Twitter today. 
What are you telling him? Well, Jagmeet said that the system is broken and that it favors the rich at the expense of the rest. And he's right. But the problem is Jagmeet is part of the system. He has signed on to the very coalition that has delivered us 30-year highs in inflation, that has doubled housing prices, that continues to ruin the working class for a very small privileged few. If he wants to help, he should break up his coalition with Justin Trudeau and start holding the government accountable, as I am doing. Let's bring in affordable government so that we have affordable cost of living. Let's remove the gatekeepers to unleash powerful inflation-proof paychecks. That's my message to Jagmeet Singh and to all Canadians. There's always something of real interest in it. I think this is appropriate to follow our interview with Pierre, Paul, uh, with Pierre Poliev to talk about the, um, the goings-on in our parliament. And, you know, ethics has been an issue for quite some time. We have a prime minister who twice has been convicted of ethics violations by the very ethics commissioner he, he chose and was uh, challenged a third time. And we've spoken about ethics in Parliament with our good friend Michelle Simpson, former Liberal Member of Parliament and seatmate to Justin Trudeau. And uh, if you're not familiar with Michelle Simpson's story, I'll give it to you just in the 20-second version. Michelle was in the habit of posting her MP expenses online. That caused problems with the hierarchy in the Liberal Party. And she was admonished by the party whip and admonished by the party leader, who was Michael Ignatieff at the time. So they told her to stop doing this, and Michelle said, no, I'm not going to stop doing it. And then they offered her uh, an interesting proposition. If you'll stop posting your expenses online, then we'll give you a bigger office with its own washroom. And Michelle said, no, why don't you guys do what I do and post everybody's expenses online? No, no, we can't have that. So, okay, so you're going to be disobedient, Member of Parliament Simpson. So what we're going to do is take away your right to speak in the Parliament, which they did, and Michelle was not allowed to acknowledge in Parliament the death of a 21-year-old constituent who was a member of the Canadian military, and who was killed in Afghanistan, she was similarly not permitted to acknowledge the death of another constituent, a Toronto area police sergeant who was run over by um, a maniac uh, who was, had stolen the snowplow. So that's the way it goes. Michelle Simpson is with us. Duff Conacher, the co-founder of Democracy Watch, is with us. And the reason for this is that members of Parliament are secretly... I love it when they do things secretly, don't you? They are secretly uh, meeting to change their own, as Duff writes, on democracywatch.ca, unethical ethics code. Michelle, first hello to you, and did I tell your story properly? Uh, yes, you did, Roy, and thank you. Um, it doesn't make it any easier hearing it again, but uh, that indeed was what happened to me. And... Uh, but you know what? I wear it as a, a badge of courage. <laughs> and, and you made a promise to your constituents that you would let them know what you were spending the expenses money on, and you did that, and that's what got you into trouble for keeping your word. Uh, yes, and actually at the time, uh, the then party whip, because it changed, the one that put me in the penalty box was different. I did have his permission to do what I promised to do when I ran. I said, there's very little one MP can do, but I'm going to tell you how I spend your money. That was okay before you were elected, but not after you were elected. No, because I, I think that uh, 
it served to probably embarrass. And I wasn't popular with a lot of the other parties either, by the way. Nobody decided they wanted to follow suit. Yeah, I was going to ask you to remind us what the uh, the other MPs, the, the rest of the of the 300 and however many there were at the time, uh, felt about what you were doing. And, and you certainly weren't on there. Let's get Michelle a Christmas card first list. Uh, no, exactly. I was never on the Christmas card list. Okay, Doc Conacher is the co-founder of Democracy Watch. It's uh, uh, democracywatch.ca. Before we do anything else, you do a lot of really investigative good work for Canadians, keeping governments of all stripes accountable, political parties accountable, provincially and federally, Duff. So there's never an overabundance of money to do your do your work. So where can people contribute to Democracy Watch? Uh, right on democracywatch.ca, they'll see a uh, Donate to Democracy button, and there's four different ways that they can give. And we welcome their support as well, also in sending letters uh, to politicians through our campaign pages, calling for these key changes to require everyone in politics and big business to be honest, ethical, representative, uh, transparent, and waste-preventing. Yeah, and there's uh, quite a bit of on Democracy Watch about Canada's banks. So as you, and you're very familiar with Michelle's story. Indeed. So as you hear Michelle and, and, and me tell her story and what she ran into, and you now on Democracy Watch in the current uh, edition, you point out, actually the, uh, the the headline I think is, MPs stop secretly changing your own unethical ethics code. So put it all together for us. What are they doing now? And what are you concerned of about what they're doing? Well, what they're doing now is uh, they held three brief meetings, finally reviewing this code two years overdue. It was supposed to be reviewed in 2020. And that was postponed for a little bit, understandably, given what happened with COVID and Parliament and many other workplaces shutting down. But they delayed it for two years. They finally are reviewing it first time in seven years. They held three brief meetings publicly, one of which was cut in half because there was a vote in the House and uh, then went behind closed doors. And so the public has a right to know whether any parties are proposing changes to weaken this, these ethics rules or strengthen them and what the other parties, how the other parties are responding. These, this code is a law. And when uh, MPs review other changes to laws and vote on them, they do it in public. But they're doing it behind closed doors here. And they're claiming that, oh, we're just making recommendations to the House. But all the changes that they've made in the last three times they've reviewed the code have been accepted by the House because, of course, they're checking with their party leaders as to whether their party leaders and, and the other uh, MPs in their party caucus support any changes that they're voting on in, in the committee. And so this is not something that goes to the House for thir- further debate. It goes to the House and it gets implemented. And it should be done in public. We, we have a right to know which parties are pushing to strengthen the code and which ones are pushing to weaken it. And uh, or whether anyone's even pushing to strengthen it. And but it's all being done behind closed doors. And it's it's quite outrageous. So, uh, and and, it's and most, especially uh, given how loophole filled the code is, it really should be called the almost impossible to be in a conflict of interest code because it, it has so many loopholes in it. OK, so I was about to ask you fundamentally what the code requires. But I think you just pointed out, you said, what is what is you said? Almost impossible to be found in conflict of interest. Yeah, it's called the conflict of interest code for members of the House of Commons. But literally has as many loopholes as it has rules, and it's almost impossible to be in a conflict of interest. It only, applies example. To one, it only applies to 1% of the decisions and actions of MPs. 
because of a giant loophole which exempts 99% of decision-making processes that MPs are involved in. Okay, give us an example, Duff, of how a member of Parliament, if he or she were intent to do so, could actually uh, shove aside the established and approved code of ethics and just do whatever the hell they want to do. Well, uh, they're allowed to have secret investments through mutual funds in businesses and then take part in changing the law that applies to the business that they have investments in to uh, try and, or push or lobby on the inside for changes to a law that would uh, make that business more money, which would cause the share price to go up and, the, and they would make money themselves as an MP. And we are not even allowed to know what mutual funds and what industries MPs are invested in. Uh, at, in the U.S. Congress, it, they are allowed to cha- trade shares and invest in businesses, but it's all disclosed publicly. And they're actually debating a measure right now to ban uh, members of Congress from trading shares in businesses because of the obvious financial conflict of interest that causes. So we actually have a very present example. Pierre Polyev is out there talking about crypto industry and has acknowledged, uh, it was in a Globe article about uh, 10 days ago, that he is invested in the crypto industry. Well, he's out there promoting the industry and he has investments in it. That's a blatant financial conflict of interest, but it's allowed under uh, the MP code. You're allowed to profit from your own decisions, to be invested in businesses and then push for changes that will make those businesses more money or just lobby for, to advance the interests of the business generally. And, and it, if you're not going to prevent financial conflicts of interest, you're not really doing anything. There's, of course, all sorts of other conflicts of interest based on relationships you might have with people, your family's interests that may be not just financial, but in other ways, and, of course, your own political interests. But because of these loopholes, you're allowed to advance your own interests in every way uh, while sitting as an MP, and you cannot be found in a conflict of interest because the code explicitly does not apply to 99% of the decision-making processes that MPs take part in. Okay, so very interesting. And I just spoke with Pierre Polyev, and the cryptocurrency question was on my list, and we always have more questions than we have time for. And I looked at it, and I thought, we're going to run out of time before we get through this. Michelle, when you listen to um, to uh, Duff explain what I think many people are going to just be shaking their heads at, because if you if you have the power to change the rules that are in place as the rules are being applied to you, it, it takes me back to what you were telling us about what you ran into and what you experienced and what you saw when it came to uh, ethics and members of parliament. So as you're hearing Duff speak, what are you thinking? It, it, that it's absolutely outrageous. I found that from from the day I was sworn in, the, the types of things that uh, if a person were so inclined, when they become an MP, they can absolutely take advantage of everything to their own financial advantage. And it was absolutely quite sickening to me. And... It, I think so many people start out, you know, um, they've got ethics, they've got principles, and you could literally see as the months went by how that eroded for a lot of people, and I witnessed it myself. So, Duff, you were about to say something, and please go ahead, but let me just ask you this out of the gate. 
how much of an influence is how, how important is it that we have a prime minister who twice was convicted of ethics violations, charged a third time, or at least investigated a third time, and he was convicted by the very man who he brought in as ethics commissioner, which you pointed out um, on this program, is contrary to parliamentary law. Yes, and Demokshwach is currently challenging the uh, one time the ethics commissioner has let Trudeau off, which is on the We Charity scandal, and we're challenging that ruling in court because it was wrong. Trudeau admitted that he shouldn't have been uh, there approving that grant to We Charity, given his family ties to the charity. And uh, the the ethics commissioner let him off, even though Trudeau said it was wrong. So uh, hopefully we'll win that court challenge because it's a very important rule that the ethics commissioner ignored in the uh, ethics law that applies to cabinet ministers, which is separate from the MPs code. There's there's two separate sets of rules, uh, and they're stronger for cabinet ministers as they should be because they have more power. But uh, what I was going to say is that the way that MPs have circled the wagons and protected themselves across all the parties in the uh, ethics area with going behind closed doors to the uh, voting on changes to their own ethics rules is very similar to what happened uh, to Michelle when MPs from all parties circled the wagons as well and protected themselves from real accountability for their spending uh, of their office budgets. And uh, also, we still do not have full disclosure. They do have to disclose hospitality and travel expenses, but they don't have to disclose the details of those expenses. And so it is still very easy to hide misspending because uh, the key loophole is when you provide a receipt showing the expense, you just have to provide the general receipt that shows the amount that was spent, not the detailed receipt that shows how many people might have been at the restaurant meal uh, and uh, that you were hosting. So you can put in a receipt for $400 and say, oh, 20 people were there and they each spent $20. That sounds reasonable. But it might actually have been just two people each spending $200 on the MP's dime. And it might have been a lobbyist that they were meeting with. And none of those details have to be disclosed. And so the misspending can still be hidden in the same way that investments in business by MPs can still be hidden from the public. Okay, under so, so basically, rules. the idea behind ethics codes is we know that you could be tempted. We know that you might fall to temptation. You might spend money in a way that's inappropriate. So we're going to invent this ethics code, but we're also going to... <laughs> Keep in mind that we're all in this together, so we'll keep the option open to change the ethics code as best suits us, depending on the circumstance that occurs. That's a great system. Yeah, it is. And they, <laughs> it's a great system. Ethics. They, the oh ethics code God. wasn't even brought in until 2004. Uh, so Michelle, 2004, go. that's 147 years after Confederation, and oh, or sorry, 137 years after the country was created. And then here we are now, 18 years later, and the code is still has more loopholes than it has rules. Okay, so I have this hankering for an $18 glass of orange juice. What can I say? (laughs) Michelle, go ahead. What do you want? What do you want to add to this, Michelle? I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you. What what do you want to add to this? What what needs to be said from your your perspective? You're the one who uh, ran the gauntlet. Well, well, that's quite right. In that they're writing their own rules. And they write them in such a way that they either aren't enforceable, they have no teeth, nothing. They come out with big announcements. Oh, yeah, I I remember when they said they were going to post the hospitality. But, you know, there were so many holes in it. It was like Swiss cheese. So I I just don't understand. Well, I do because I, I did talk to a few people. 
and they just don't want people digging in and maybe it becoming retroactive for a few years. They well, don't even know word, pain in their own midst. Has the Russian military exposed weaknesses that NATO military leaders may not have suspected? And what actions should or must NATO nations be willing to undertake now against Russia? Political decisions are being made not to attack, um, not to put in place a no-fly zone. Although yesterday, our former chief of defense staff, General Rick Hillier, told us that he supports the idea of a no-fly zone and argues Putin would never reach for the nuclear button. Many questions to be answered, lots to look at. And uh, so, so what do we what do we get at here? Let's talk to Major General Jeffrey Schlosser, United States Army, former commanding officer of the 101st Airborne Division in Afghanistan, and he's the author of an amazing book. If you want to read a book about war fighting, about politics, about leadership, about challenges, read Marathon War by Major General General Jeffrey Schlosser. Uh, General, thank you very much for the time. Well, let me ask you first of all. What's your reaction to the accusations of war crimes and even genocide against the Russian military and for what they're doing in Ukraine? Hey, Roy, thanks for having me on the show. Uh, I, I would have to say that, uh, obviously, you know, any kind of war is brutal. And, uh, and, and this one is, uh, I would just say, is particularly brutal. I don't know. You know, genocide's actually got an international law uh, definition to it. And uh, when actually nations decide that genocide's happening, actually, there's, you know, those that have signed an international covenant on it are actually supposed to uh, do things, in other words, to prevent the genocide. So I don't know. I mean, I frankly don't know if it meets the legal definition of it. But let me just tell you, as somebody that's fought, you know, in three wars, um, what's happening to the civilians by the Russian troops is incredibly uh, terrible and brutal, and um, it won't long be forgotten. And this is something that, uh, this is not going to be forgotten quickly. This is going to be something that's going to be held against the Russians and actually the Russian people for a long time to come. Yeah, I've, uh, I've heard that even recently in the last two weeks or so, given what's been seen to take place in places like Bucha in, uh, in Ukraine, there have been more military veterans of Western nations like the United States, like Canada, who said, I can't take this anymore. I can't stand watching this anymore. I'm going over there. And I understand there is a, a group of Canadian military veterans who will be going over in, in very short order. So it must be very hard for someone who has fought in war, who understands the brutality of war, and, and then see civilian populations uh, being assaulted as they are in Ukraine. That must be that must cause great con- great consternation, great concern. Yeah, I, how mean, do you, I mean, how do you how do you deal with that as a soldier? It's really super hard. I mean, in other words, you try to uh, you know, in many cases, you internalize this stuff, boy. And, and you know, I mean, I as a commander in Afghanistan, uh, you know, I was responsible for. Um, you know, obviously killing the enemy, killing the Taliban, killing the uh, al-Qaeda terrorists. Uh, and from time to time, we would make an incredibly bad mistake. And, uh, and unfortunately, we have uh, civilian casualties. And uh, they still, 13 years, 14 years later, they still, you know, burn in my mind. They burn my soul. 
sort of set out like these Russian troops have uh, and actually indiscriminately, you know, bomb shell. And in some cases, it almost looks I would say it's purposeful uh, to create fear, to create, uh, you know, uh, refugees to uh, basically clear out areas to have that. I can't imagine a, a professional soldier having that on their mind. And so I, it's, it's hard for me to actually understand how the Russian leadership, you know, the professional officers are dealing with this or how they are actually doing it. And that's how do I explain to our viewers or our listeners? I, I can't. I, you know, this is something that's a, it's a tragedy that we are finding ourselves, in a sense, deterred from actually intervening in this process. And I, by that I mean, you know, NATO um, uh, and, of course, other nations that uh, care about, uh, you know, uh, uh, civilian casualties around yeah. the world. General Schlosser, uh, have the people of Ukraine received less protection and support than they should have from the West and from NATO. Seeing what we're seeing, I don't know what's magical about that line that separates Ukraine from Poland other than it's the NATO demarcation uh, line, but don't they deserve more protection than than they're getting? I mean, I know they're getting weapons to help their military, which is punching above its weight. They're just doing an incredible, incredible job defending their country. But the people themselves, should we not be doing more for them? I mean, I think so. Um, you know, I'm no longer, uh, you know, in public service. Uh, and so it's easy for me to say. But, uh, you know, looking backwards over 35 years, 34 years of my military service, and, and, and of course, you know, wars are fought in and around civilian populations. They're, they're fought usually for political reasons. Um, and alliances do make a huge difference. But what we've found here is, is that, I think all of us know, citizens as well as politicians, we know what the right answer is. And it is not just giving arms to the Ukrainians and expecting them to be able to fight a, you know, a large country like Russia uh, with, you know, more advanced weapons. We know that there's a different answer out there and a better answer. We can't find ourselves to get to it because we find ourselves deterred by this potential that uh, Russia would go nuclear. And I cannot believe that this is the the final answer. We're not going to allow, I don't think, the, the partitioning of Ukraine. But it's going to take a while for us to find a solution uh, beyond where we're currently at. So, so today, President Zelensky met with uh, U.S. Secretary of State and the Secretary of Defense. And he said he's going to make it very clear what Ukraine requires. I think they've been doing it for some time, asking for the no-fly zone, which uh, the former Supreme Commander of NATO uh, U.S. Air Force General Philip Breedlove has said he supports, and uh, former Chief of Defense Staff for Canada General Rick Hillier uh, has also said he supports. Um, what about that? Would you would would you would you feel is there a is there a case to be made, a logical case to be made for a no-fly zone? Because emotionally, I'm sitting here in front of my microphone, and I'm going to tell you ten times out of ten, I'm going to say get it up there, but. Right. I hear the other argument. Well, there's clearly a you know, humanitarian case for a no-fly zone. But, you know, from my personal experience, both in Iraq, well, let's talk Iraq. Um, uh, we established two no-fly zones, Northern Watch, Southern Watch. And, you know, uh, we did it with a coalition of countries. But the way that it was actually done uh, would be perceived as an act of war. In other words, you destroy all the air defense uh, capability of the country. 
Uh, if it turns on its radar system, it dies. Basically, you destroy it. Um, uh, in that, and so that would mean right around the entire area, including those areas that are right in the Russian, you know, on Russian uh, uh, land. And then anything that flies would be would be shot down. Um, could do NATO do this? Absolutely. Could we do it in two or three days? Probably. Uh, biggest question of it is, is could we signal uh, enough resolve and yet also to the Russians for them to understand that this is the new reality? We've just established a no-fly zone, but the new reality is, is that's it. We're not going to. We're not trying to go to a you know complete war, conventional war with uh, Russia, and um, and we we would have to try to deter them from going and and basically you know being more aggressive, and in other words, probably trying to use tactical nuclear weapons or something of that nature. It's it's a, it's a real problem. My heart does go and say, yeah, we need a no-fly no zone. The technical realities of establishing it. Our military realities are, it's not as hard as it, as it sounds. The technical reality, the political reality of keeping uh, Russia then from making a more aggressive move, that's the move. That's really hard. Yeah. I just have a feeling that sooner or later we won't have any choice. But you're the, uh, you're the man who was put in charge of the 101st Airborne Division of the United States Army, and that is a, a big job, a major job, and... You understand uh, these situations better than I do. I'm just speaking from the heart, but, you know, the Russians show no indication in general of stopping their vicious assaults against the civilian population. So I just sit here and I say we have a moral responsibility to intercede. Um, The book is Marathon War. General Schlosser, if I can ask you to take us inside Marathon War, because there's so much that you write about, so much about leadership, so many challenges that, that, that are faced what inside the book is a, something we can take away as we look at the situation in uh, in, in Ukraine? What can, what can we take from your book and apply to what we're seeing? You know, Roy, uh, people ask me that uh, frequently now, and they try to, you know, um, have me try to take some lessons that we learned in Afghanistan and compare them to Ukraine. And let me just give you one uh, that is, it, to me, is starting. starting. <laughs> we'll start I, it's it's just startling to me, I guess. And that is, I talk about how when I went to Ukraine, I you know, or to Afghanistan, I wasn't aware of the level of corruption, endemic corruption throughout civil society, throughout uh, all of Afghanistan, both in the all in the tribes as well as all the way up in the government. And that led, I think, overall. I mean, you know, as I look backwards to the debacle, not only of the withdrawal. Um, by the United States out of uh, Afghanistan, but also the very poor fighting that was done, you know, by the Afghan government troops. The corruption made a huge difference. And I think that that is probably where I could put my finger and say that's one of the key reasons Afghanistan fell the way they did and uh, were beat by the Taliban. Uh, I look at the Ukraine and there may be a levels of corruption there that I'm unaware of, but what you are seeing is, is that it's whatever level of corruption that there is inside, you know, either civil society, inside business or in the government, um, it is nothing like Afghanistan. And, and instead, what you have is this will that, you know, that's all I can frame it, Roy, is, is it's a will to live as a Ukrainian. Uh, the will to live on your own land, the, li- the will to have your own type of a government. Um, and it's so different from what I saw in Afghanistan towards the latter part of, uh, you know, my time there commanding the 101st and uh, Regional Command East. 
it's just this idea that, uh, um, you know, uh, this country is my country. I'm going to fight for it. And as you just mentioned before, you know, the situation in Mariupol may well be that. They may fight to the end. And with many of their families, those soldiers there, uh, if the Russians don't allow them some sort of way to get on out of there or do some sort of a political uh, or a you know, prisoner type of a, um, you know, agreement. Anyway, that's where I would say, Roy, it's, you know, corruption in Afghanistan doomed it in many cases. Um, and you just don't see that in Ukraine. Yeah. Uh, during our first conversation, early in our first conversation, General Slosser, you talked about the um, withdrawal from Afghanistan, which was not professional, undignified, very concerning about what it did to the Afghan people who'd worked with the United States and worked for Canada because our withdrawal was just as chaotic. But you said what took place is really just going to create the kind of dynamic where 10 years from now, the U.S. will probably be facing what you faced prior to 9-11. There'll be a rebirth of terrorism and, you, and your country is going to face what you faced prior to 9-11. If the Russians are not confronted, if there, if there isn't a really clear message sent that we're not going to tolerate the kind of total destruction of a population that you're involved with, we're going to stop you. If we don't do it there, we're going to have to do it somewhere, are we not? Don't Putin will just be encouraged to, to go somewhere else and, and do this again, don't you think? It's not only Putin, Roy. It's uh, others that are watching from around the world. Um, that, uh, you know, the Chinese are watching this situation very closely. So are the North Koreans, so are the Iranians. So I could go on and on. Um, this cannot be a false red line that we allow to kind of just get crumbled, crushed. I mean, I think at the end of the day, uh, it's not satisfactory just to supply arms and then say, Ukraine, it's up to you to win this all by yourself. And if you don't, it's, it's too bad. Because uh, as you say, what's happening on the ground is... Um, if it ends up in the partition of the Ukraine uh, by forcible action by the Russians, by the, by the Russian president, but also by Russians. I mean, let's be clear, the soldiers are fighting this, and there's some level of support to uh, this uh, from the Russian people, uh, although it's pretty hard to tell how much they know of the real facts. But uh, my personal belief is, just as you said, that there's something has to be done to say, this will not stand. I mean, I, I remember that's what President Bush said when uh, uh, the former President Bush, Father Daddy Bush, or whatever you want to call him, uh, when the Kuwait was invaded. And, uh, yeah. and I personally believe it's going to have to be something like that. Okay. Uh, we cannot allow it. For the French national election runoff vote today between Emmanuel Macron and Marine Le Pen, we understand is, well, the, the votes, or at least the numbers are in. We're told that Emmanuel Macron has uh, won the election, which I think was uh, expected, even though Marine Le Pen was, well, she did much better this time than she did last time. Professor Balkan Devlin joins us, senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute, adjunct research professor at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carton University and super forecaster for Good Judgment, Inc. Professor Devlin, no great surprise that uh, Emmanuel Macron won, but what does this election and how it took place say about developments in France? Uh, thanks, for, thanks for having me, Roy. Well, I think a couple of things. Uh, it is, I think, both in Canada and elsewhere, 
uh, in Europe and our allies, uh, you know, breathe a, a sigh of relief uh, with these results, uh, to be frank, um, partly because Marine Le Pen's close relationship and an affinity with uh, Vladimir Putin and Putin's policies, as well as the statements regarding uh, you know, the, the future of France in NATO, as well as in the European Union, and then more broadly, the, you know, the, the policies that she was advocating uh, internationally. So in that sense, it is a, a relief. It's also a relief for the fact that the, um, the expectation was it's going to be much more closer. I think it's about 58% for Macron and uh, 42% for Le Pen. And uh, the expectation was it might be as close as 52 to 48. So although this is a, a smaller victory than last time, 2017, was I think like 65% for Macron, it is still it, it really said it wasn't too close. However, um, it also highlights the fact that there is a, a bubbling discontent uh, within within the French uh, public regarding uh, how Macron and uh, more broadly the, the the mainstream French um, political party handled themselves, uh, which so, is not a surprising thing. That sort of the the, the traditional <laughs> um, thing with the with the French politics there's always this um, you know a protest or or, or or a sort of discontent component to it. But it is for the first time really it, it is it has been expressed this strongly with a far right um, uh, far right uh, candidate. So what's the impact on the European Union of this election? Are they just essentially going to say, well, it's business as usual, or is there a message that uh, the EU is going to gather from this? I think we will know more uh, within two months when we have the um, parliamentary elections uh, in France. Um, it is going to shape whether Macron will be able to govern uh, with a majority in the parliament uh, or not. It will be quite uh unusual uh in in the current uh, political uh you know uh, history of, of france uh, if, if macron maintains his his majority i mean he has been elected uh this is like in the, the in the past 15 years or so uh the, the, for the first time uh, elected for a second term uh, as the as the french president but if he also maintains his parliamentary majority in the elections, in the parliamentary elections that's going to happen in two, two, two months, uh, it will be the first time since De Gaulle uh, had a, a similar uh, in a victory as well as the parliamentary elections since 1965, if okay. I'm not wrong. So okay. um, that will shape up whether it will make a lot more difference, whether he can govern uh, in France um, uh, with the majority or not. That will make a difference uh, for, for, the, for the EU. If he All cannot right. and if he loses, then... Uh, it, it might uh, spell a, a lot of trouble because Macron's France was taking a, a significant European lead uh, when it comes to foreign policy. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 